This is Corey Olson welcoming you to class number three of my Tolkien course. I'm sorry to say that due to an unfortunate software problem, I don't have the live recording of last Friday's class to post for you. The best I can do is to give you a summary of the main topics we covered, based on my notes, and I will return to the live recordings from Monday's class. Class number three is on the second half of On Fairy Stories. I began with an apology for the fact that we weren't going to get enough time to do justice to Tolkien's discussion either of children and their relationship to fairy stories or to drama. I did just note in passing my own admiration for Tolkien's perceptiveness in his discussion of children. Tolkien clearly pays attention to children, which I find to be pretty rare, even among parents and people who say they love children. He actually listens to them and uh, and actually gives them the compliment of, of, of taking them seriously. Uh, and I find his discussion throughout really remarkable for that reason. But our main discussion in the beginning in, in the beginning of the class focused on Tolkien's discussion of stories and story making. In the essay, of course, we, we began in class last time talking about fairies and then about the land of fairy in general, and then about fairy stories in particular and what did and did not count as fairy stories. And then at the end of the last class, we had begun to discuss some of the larger terms of vocabulary, some of Tolkien's larger discussion of stories in general and story-making. So sort of went back a little bit there uh, and then continued forward from it. Uh, Of course, we started off by reviewing the difference between the primary and the secondary world. That is, the primary world being the world that is around us, that we interact with, uh, with our senses, and the secondary world being an imagined world, a fictional world created by an author. Um, now, and I wanted to emphasize, of course, uh, to make sure that there is no confusion that calling, primary, calling the two worlds primary and secondary doesn't introduce any kind of, of pejorative distinction between the two of them. He's not saying that a secondary world is secondary in the sense that it's, that it's, that it's lesser and, 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 and less good and less important uh, than the primary world. Um, but rather, again, it is, it's secondary in that it imaginatively derives from the primary world and that it isn't outwardly to the senses real, though uh, whenever you use the word real or realistic when describing something, uh, especially in connection to on fairy stories, I always feel compelled to qualify that. Tolkien rarely uses the word real uh, without some kind of qualification or even quotation marks throughout this essay. Um, So that's the first fundamental piece of vocabulary to keep in mind, the difference between the primary and the secondary world. Now, what a story maker does, of course, Tolkien calls subcreation, and we talked a little bit about the implications of that term. Uh, first, of course, the root of the word subcreation is creation. He is fundamentally connecting what an author does to what God did in the creation of the world. But of course, by calling it subcreation, he relates it to God's creation in in a very particular and careful way. It is clearly derivative of God's creation. It's not just a separate act of creation. It's not equal to God's act of creation. Uh, in Middle English, poets called themselves, Chaucer called himself a maker. I know that was one uh, one medieval expression for what a poet is and what an author does. Um, and that is, it, Tolkien uses that term as well, especially we will see in Mythopoeia. But, um, and that's a little closer to the spirit of what a sub-creator does, what, what, what the difference is between a sub-creator and a creator. God creates out of nothing. A sub-creator doesn't create out of nothing. He has, as raw materials, the primary world around him, as, for instance, in Tolkien's example in On Fairy Stories of the Green Sun. A sub-creator can create a world in which 
there is a green sun, but of course the concept green and the concept sun are concepts that he gets from the primary world. So in this sense, even though the author might make something that is genuinely new, uh, it's not created out of nothing. Um, so an author is a sub-creator. Sub-creation is the creation of that secondary world. Um, keep in mind that this creation of a secondary world, this idea of sub-creation, is true of all stories. Um, not just of fantasy stories, not even just of literature. If you imagine yourself sitting around in a circle, I, the illustration I gave in class, you know, you're sitting around in the in the dining hall telling stories uh, to your friends from what you did over break or something that happened to you in your childhood or whatever. Um, anytime you're just telling an anecdote, you're still making a sub-creation. That is, you are still telling a story. You're still needing your... trying to get... in order to be successful, you're trying to bring your listeners into the world of your story. You're trying to get them to invest secondary belief in the little world that you're trying to describe, the the, the thing that you're trying to share. Um, you know, a lot of times when you're trying to tell an anecdote, or when somebody is trying to tell an anecdote and it's not working, they'll end up sort of saying lamely, well, I guess you had to be there to understand. Uh, and of course, what that means is that their sub-creative art has failed. They have not succeeded in being able to bring their listeners into that place so that in this imaginative sense, they are there, or they were there. Um, so this is all just about what happens in stories and storytelling in general. Now, one side note also that uh, I made in class, there's a, a trend that I've noticed, a term that I find that students use a lot and that um, I've noticed a lot, especially in creative writing contexts, uh, tends to be used about stories. Uh, students will say, I couldn't relate to that story. Or, I found that story really easy to relate to. And this concept of, of, of relating to a story I find, I find interesting. And I think it's possible, I think, for this to be used in, in two different ways. In one way, I think I get the impression that sometimes when people say, I can't relate to it or, or, or I need to be able to relate to it, what they, they're using that term to, to, to describe essentially the phenomenon that Tolkien is describing, what he, what he calls secondary belief. When they say, I, I couldn't relate to it, meaning I couldn't enter into it, I couldn't invest myself in it. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, I mean, that's in Tolkien's terms, perfectly fine, exactly what they should be thinking about and what they should be doing. But sometimes I get the impression that when people say, I couldn't relate to it, what they mean is, it was strange to me. It wasn't like me. It was different from me and my experience. I couldn't connect myself to it, or rather I couldn't connect the story to me and my own outlook and my own perspective. And it's not that I think that people are sort of consciously intending that, but that seems to be one of the things that's implied often uh, when people use that use that expression about relating to a story. And of course, that, I think, is not necessar necessarily a failure in the art, but perhaps a failure in humility in the listener. Uh, of course, one of the things that stories are supposed to do is to take us out of ourselves, uh, to, to bring us in, into an encounter with something that is different. Um, all stories are not to be just mirrors of ourselves. Um, and fairy stories, least of all. So I think that that's just sort of something to be aware of uh, in, in connection with Tolkien's idea of secondary belief. Now, at the beginning of his section on fantasy and on fairy stories, Tolkien 
talks a little bit more about the story writing process, how story writing happens. Now, it starts with imagination. And here, Tolkien is appealing to an old uh, medieval distinction between two different mental faculties, as they described it, that is imagination and what they called fantasy, uh, often uh, charmingly spelled with a ph um, now imagination the, as tolkien explains the, the 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 literal definition of imagination classically was the ability to conjure up images in one's mind of something that is not currently in front of your eyes that doesn't mean making something up it just means calling up the image of something that you're not seeing so if you can picture in your head a room that you are not currently sitting in or a person that you saw yesterday or something like that you're using your imagination you're creating an image in your mind fantasy is different from that fantasy is conjuring up an image of something you have never seen before now, that could be something, for instance, in the primary world that you never yourself have witnessed. If, for instance, you have uh, never been to a, a, a particular city or country, but you have heard descriptions of it, and based upon those descriptions, you have created an image in your mind of what you think it might look like, you are using your fantasy. Um, or, of course, the more extreme version, if you are making something up which is not anywhere in the primary world, if you're making up some fantastic monster or new thing, uh, you know, like a green sun, you are using your fantasy. So there was that distinction between those two those two faculties, classically. Um, now, he says, so, so Tolkien, of course, insists that story writing starts with imagination, with, with, with the conjuring up of pictures. And how do you get from imagination at the beginning to subcreation at the end? You know, and again, th- even thinking about this in that simplistic anecdote example I gave before, how do you get from the incident that you remember to the story that you actually tell uh, to people around a table? Well, the answer is art, literary art. It is art that gets you from your imagination to subcreation. It is Im- it, it is it is literary art which enables you to take the image that's in your head and communicate it to other people so that they can invest in it in their imagination. Uh, that is, of course, secondary belief. Now, the perfection of this kind of art is what he calls fairy and drama. That is, what elves can do is the perfection of this art, and that he calls enchantment. And here he is making uh, an important distinction with the kind of magic that elves have. He's very careful in the use of the word magic, or he tries to be. He points out one time, he does it sloppily, um, that he tries not to use the word magic to apply to what uh, to what elves, to what fairies can do. Because magic, properly speaking, he says, is what the laborious scientific magician does. That is, the kind of person like Dr. Faustus or, uh, or, or, or Prospero from, uh, from The Tempest does, that is, uh, to be casting spells out of books and drawing symbols on the ground and conjuring demons and things. Um, that is very, very far from what elves do. What elves do is not that kind of magic where they are seeking to make things happen in the primary world, where they're seeking to dominate the world around them in some way. Instead, it is the perfection of art, the perfection in the sense of literary art. Um, enchantment, he defines, he says that it, that it Enchantment is when the audience is when the audience of the art actually mistakes it, gives to that secondary world 
primary belief that is actually believes that what the story describes is happening to them. Now, this is not to say that they just believe that what happens in the story is true. Uh, you know, if you read a work of nonfiction and you trust the author of that work of nonfiction, you will come away from that book believing that the things that it described actually happened in the primary world, but that's of course not the, it's it's the experience of the art itself. When you're reading a work of nonfiction, you still know perfectly well that you're reading a book, right? In fairy and drama, in elven enchantment, you are so drawn into that secondary world that it deceives even your senses, and you believe yourself to be within it. Um, that Tolkien says is sort of the logical extreme, uh, the the theoretical extreme of what art can do. Um, and that is sort of, in one sense, the ultimate goal that all that all literary artists are sort of shooting for. Now, keep in mind, all of these things that I've been talking about so far, all of this, he's still not yet talking about fantasy literature in particular. All of this stuff is true of all stories. The, the thing that separates fantasy literature from so-called realistic literature is the set of rules given to the secondary world. In a, in a work of realistic fiction, the, works, the, the rules of their secondary world are the same as the rules of the primary world. In a work of fantasy literature, the secondary world is different. As, as Tolkien says, fantasy adds one more element. He, you know, he, it adds this element of strangeness and wonder. When you are writing fantasy, you become not merely a describer of, the wor- of a world which is just like the world around you, but a maker Remember what I said before about the sort of shallow, self-centered sense of, of relating to stories. Fantasy pushes us past this, pushes us outside of our, of our egocentric comfort zones. Fantasy, Tolkien says, is not about possibility, about what can really happen, what might really happen to us, what is like us. It's not about possibility, it's about desirability. If fantasy stories, if fairy stories awaken desire... They succeed. Fantasy, he says, seeks shared enrichment, partners in delight. Now, he admits that there are some drawbacks to fantasy literature. He denies the idea that fantasy literature is connected with a denial of or confusion of reality. That is not a drawback to fantasy literature. The, 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 if, if you write or read fantasy literature, Tolkien says there's, there's not really very much chance that you are going to become confused about what's real and what's not real. In fact, he insists uh, just the opposite. Fantasy is based on reason. That in order to appreciate fantasy, you have to have a keen appreciation of the difference between fantasy and reality. But by, willing, by being willing to take freedoms, by being willing imaginatively to cross that line between the the normal world which surrounds you and this and this fantasy world this strangeness this strange and wonderful world um in doing this we become as he says the lovers of nature and not her slaves no the true drawback of fantasy literature tolkien explains is that it's really hard to do to 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 make a secondary world to really make one that command secondary belief requires an almost elvish craft, he says. I mean, this, it's, just, it's very hard to do. It is much easier to write a story within a secondary world which is just like ours and where you're not taking any risks, where you're not asking that much of your reader. Now, one consequence, of course, of this fact is that there's 
a lot of bad fantasy literature out there. Many people who try to write fantasy fail because it's easier to fail when you're trying to do something that's very hard than when you're trying to do something that's easier. Um, that is, of course, what you would expect to find. Now, I moved on towards the end of the class uh, in trying to describe, and I, I ended up going pretty fast at the end of the class, uh, trying to describe the, the, the three primary benefits uh, to fantasy that Tolkien describes. That is recovery, escape, and consolation. And I ran out of time before I got to consolation, but I did get to talk about recovery and escape. Um, so I'll go over those two briefly. Recovery. Tolkien begins by looking at the definition of the word recovery, and he points out two definitions, two ways in which we traditionally use the word recovery, both of which he claims to be relevant to fantasy. The first is recovery in the sense of of getting things back, to, have, to, 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 to recover a thing that you've lost. And here, of course, the things that we've lost, he says, are the things around us. Fantasy helps things to lose the triteness of familiarity, he says. The simplicities of the primary world are made luminous by fantasy. Um, now, the, here he means, of course, the stuff that surrounds us in our daily lives, we become so used to, so familiar to, that we never even look twice at them anymore. We, as human beings, have this great tendency to take stuff for granted. We might be really struck by something the first time we see it. Perhaps when you move to a new area and you drive between your house and your work for the first time, you are really struck by the beauty of the fields and the forests and the hills, and it's really striking terrain that you're driving through. But, of course, when that striking first drive becomes your daily commute, you don't pay a lick of attention to it before very long has passed. Fantasy helps us to recover things by taking those familiar items and placing them in a fantastic setting, in a setting where we no longer take things for granted, um, then we are prompted to view them again for the first time. Uh, I mean, from my own experience, the primary thing that I feel that I've recovered in this sense from reading Tolkien's fantasy are plants. Um, it's not that I believe Ents exist in the primary world, but having read stories about Ents and Fangorn and everything, I have a hard time looking at trees and plants quite the same way. I just don't. Uh, last year, we had to cut down a tree in my backyard, and boy, I tell you, it was a wrench. I'd never thought about it much before, but uh, I mean, I, I, it's not something I ever would have given much thought to, but man... It was uh, it was a hard decision cutting down that tree. You know, I was joking in class. You know, sometimes I think about when uh, you know I have a vegetarian friends. You know, sometimes I have a couple of fairly aggressive vegetarian friends who you know will say things when you're eating meat. You know, will say, "Do you realize you are eating the the the, the dead flesh of an animal right now?" and of course, I want to say, thinking of thinking of Tolkien and thinking of the ends, think, you know, do you realize that you are eating the dead carcass of a plant right now? I mean, it's it's these are living, growing things, and uh, and you know, Tolkien does such a great job within his fantasy world of drawing attention uh, to the life 
of plants and especially the life of trees. You know, it's hard when, again, when I'm coming to coming to cut down the tree in my backyard and thinking of Treebeard saying that he's not on anybody's side because nobody is really on his side. Nobody really cares for the trees as he does. Um, nobody else really appreciates them. Everybody just looks at them and thinks it's trees. It's a forest and they don't realize each one has its own voice. Each one has its own unique fingerprints. Each one uh, is, is itself a living, growing creature. Um, that's just sort of one illustration of the kind of recovery that he talks about by 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 seeing these normal things these these familiar things in a in a fantastic setting um it helps you to recover them to 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 recover your relationship with them now the second definition of the word recovery that he applies to fantasy it's we don't just recover things we ourselves also can recover as as when we recover from from an illness um, and what we need to recover from is exactly our attitude towards familiar things. Because, of course, it's not the fault of the things that we cease to, to really appreciate them and enjoy them. Um, the problem is in us. And the parallel that he draws um, is between us and dragons. He compares us to a dragon who takes beautiful and precious things and then just piles them up into a big heap and sits on it and doesn't do anything with it, doesn't even appreciate it, doesn't even think about or look at its beauty, um, but rather is focused only on a, on, on, on a kind of selfish possessiveness. Um, and he characterizes us that way, that we tend to be possessive in that same way. When something is familiar to us, we consider it ours, we appropriate it uh, in a very dragonish way. And here we need to recover. We we need to recover from this from this mindset, um, and that in this way, fantasy builds humility. The trees in your backyard are not your trees; they are separate living creatures that are separate from you. No more yours than they are you, as Tolkien says. So that's recovery. The first of the the first of the three benefits. The second benefit of fantasy is escape. And here he is primarily engaging with the accusation leveled against him and against readers and writers of fantasy literature ever since, uh, the accusation that what they're doing is merely escapist. And what he emphasizes here is that it, it, it's not just the word escapist that's applied, but this tone, this tone of scorn that inevitably comes along with it, that idea of being merely escapist. Um, and... His counter-argument to this, of course, hinges upon the fact that he, he emphasizes that there's, there is no such scorn attached to the concept of escape in real life. He says, you know, that, that, that it's, it's certainly a poor word choice that they've made. Normally, uh, escape is a good thing. In fact, it can even be a noble thing. Um, and he says that when people when people use the word escapist in this term um they are doing something perhaps a little bit dishonest he says you know they are they are they are confusing the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter the way they talk about it is as if by indulging in the creation or or the imagination of a fantasy world, a world that is different from our reality, you are somehow not facing facts. You are you are abandoning your responsibility to the real world. You are just fleeing. Um, you are being a deserter. 
Tolkien emphasizes that escape actually, you know, he is not at all ashamed of the idea uh, that fantasy leads to escape. But of course, that escape is a good thing. The metaphor he uses uh, is, as I said, not to a deserter, but a prisoner. He says, if somebody is taken away from his homeland and locked in a cell, no one would really blame him for wanting to escape or trying to escape. Or, if he can't escape, of thinking and talking about something besides his prison cell. And that is how he compares fantasy. Now, what you can see here is a fundamental difference in worldview, right? What lies at the root of these two different perspectives on what fantasy is? That is, whether the escape that fantasy authors, whether the escape that fantasy offers is a good or a bad thing, um, is basically what you think the real world is where you think your true home is. Um, If this primary world around us is indeed all that there is, then to escape from it, to create a different world that is different from our primary world, is simply escapist. The the word that Tolkien suggests to use instead of escapist, as he said, escapist, not a bad thing. So if if you want a word which describes a bad thing, he he suggests fugitive uh, to to imply more the the flight of the deserter. Um, If you think, as I say, if you think this real world, this primary world around us is all that there is, then to create a fantastic world is simply fugitive, is simply irresponsible. But... Tolkien suggests he clearly doesn't believe that. He clearly believes that this world that we are in is more like a prison cell than it is like our homeland. Um, We don't belong here. We belong elsewhere. And here again, you can see, you know, whenever you push very hard on Tolkien's concepts, whenever you you begin to really start asking, what are the implications of this statement? What are the implications of this term that he uses? You pretty quickly get down to his Christian worldview. Of course, he does not believe that this world is either our source or our destiny. As, you know, many great medieval authors like, like Boethius, one of my favorite authors, uh, would say, humans... The human soul is made in the image of God and is destined to return to God. The human soul longs for heaven and longs for union with God in the, in the same way that a rock longs to fall to the ground. Um, that the, the, you know, the, 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 the law by which the human soul yearns after its true heavenly home is as inescapable as the law of gravity that pulls rocks down to the earth. That's what we're made of. That's where we come from, and it's what we long to return to. Um, Fantasy can help in this, can be a vehicle for this, um, can help to point towards this larger reality, which we are not generally surrounded by. Now, of course, this idea is doubly true if you think not only of the material world that surrounds us, but of course of our current modern society. And Tolkien found kind of appalling the idea that anybody could say that it is irresponsible or inappropriate for us to look at the world that surrounds us and not think, gosh, maybe there's a better alternative to this. You know, that part of what drives 
fantasy, part of what drives this impulse to escape, is not just sort of a vague metaphysical sense that 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 you know your ultimate spiritual destiny is elsewhere, but a very real, a very practical, a very responsible repulsion for the society that surrounds you. Tolkien had some very serious uh, criticisms of his society and of sort of the whole trend of his society in the 20th century. Um, And he voices many of those uh in you know this section of the essay gets a little bit disjointed as he kind of runs off in one direction and another in his criticism of of industrialization uh of of modern warfare um he has a lot of serious problems there and and does not uh does not pull any punches with that and again that's that's part of what that's part of what fantasy can accomplish. Um, we should not all be compelled, as he says, simply to celebrate the world around us, including the atrocities that we see, whether greater or lesser atrocities, um, and that people still have the right, and in fact, people can still benefit from escaping from that world, from from, from this world that surrounds us. Well, that's about as far as we got. We got right up to to Consolation, and uh, I had to stop, so I will pick up there at the beginning of class next time. We will move on in the next class to a full discussion of his poem, Mythopoeia. And uh, I would recommend if you just Google Mythopoeia, you should be able to find a text of the poem online. I will also, at the beginning of my next class session, just I, I will just read Mythopoeia from beginning to end. It's a comparatively short poem, um, so that you can have it uh, as an audio in an audio file right right in with the class file that I will distribute for uh for next time um but, but as i say before i get to the discussion of mythopoeia i will uh do we'll do a quick finish up of of the the end of on fairy stories uh and then and then move into it Anyway, I apologize again for the uh, the terrible inferiority of this recording, but I hope this will kind of bridge the gap and then we can pick up with the live recordings tomorrow. Thanks to all of you who are following along with us, and Godspeed. <laughs>